This is week number 13 in our study in the book of Daniel. And last week we finished up chapter 3. And you'll remember chapter 3 was all about um, the three Jewish boys and being thrown into the fiery furnace. And that's what the story is all about. But that's not what the message of chapter 3 is. The message out of chapter 3 is that God shows himself to both Nebuchadnezzar and all these men and leaders who had gathered from across all the provinces, that he indeed is in control, that he indeed uh, can thwart the purposes of anybody whom he desires to, that he's the creator and he's in control of his creation and he can accomplish his purposes. God, in that passage, uses the evil intents of Nebuchadnezzar and the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to use those and the the blending of those two things to show himself to all of these people, specifically to Nebuchadnezzar. He showed Nebuchadnezzar personally that even though he thought that no God could thwart him, that his will would supersede anybody else's and any God who tried to stop him, God showed him that was not true. God showed him that he could indeed work miracles in his midst and thwart the purposes of Nebuchadnezzar. He also showed all these leaders from across all the provinces of Babylon that he was the one true God. He demonstrated that by the miracle. He demonstrated that by thwarting Nebuchadnezzar, by really trumping all that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. He had brought all the people together that he might unite them and get them to commit to himself by building the great graven image, and, the, and then God turned the tables on him. And as we've discussed, these, as all these people traveled back to their, to their own countries and their own languages and all, they would not have been talking about the 9 by 90 foot image that Nebuchadnezzar had built. They would have been talking about the three who went into the fiery furnace and didn't get harmed, about the great God who stood in the furnace with them and protected them. That's what they would all been talking about. The, the image would not have been significant to them at all after God worked his miracles. And, you know, God has been all through um, the book of Daniel showing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, being gracious to him. And, and there are many who believe that that uh, angel or that uh, angel of the Lord who was in the furnace with uh, the three Jewish boys was actually Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, if you would, of Jesus Christ in the fire with those three men. And if that be the case, then God showed himself in person to Nebuchadnezzar as he looked in and saw the angel of the Lord. So we, we see God being so gracious to Nebuchadnezzar to work all these miracles in his midst and to show him um, his own power and his own majesty. And so today we'll kind of get into that as we get into chapter 4 and see what Nebuchadnezzar's response and his understanding of all of this is. So this morning I'll begin by just reading down in chapter 4. We won't get far, not as far as we probably should. Um, maybe read the first nine verses here. So in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, There the scripture reads, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. 
it hath seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related to them, related the dream to them, but they could not make known its interpretation to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now what does this chapter sound like? Right, but this is kind of like a replay, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't sound just like chapter 2. I mean, you've got the king having a dream, and then he calls all the wise men before him. They have no clue. Not, you remember at that time he said, tell me not only the interpretation of my dream, but tell me my dream. He doesn't do that this time. He's a little more gracious. But then they can't answer it, so in comes Daniel to give the right and proper interpretation of the dream. It sounds like the exact same thing we went through in chapter 2. This one has a spin on it, though. It does have a spin on it. Right. I mean, well, and you notice there's no threats here, right? It doesn't say, if you don't tell me the interpretation of my dream, I'll tear you from limb to limb and make your house a rubbish heap either. So maybe he's a little more mellow, right? This is maybe 15 or 20 years later, could be. And so maybe he's calmed down a little bit and not quite so rash and maybe got a few years of wisdom on him. I don't know, but he definitely approaches it uh, much differently than he did before. And this time, you know, the other dream was about um, all of history, really. I believe it goes all the way from the time of Babylon all the way to the end when God establishes his kingdom and includes all the kingdoms in between. There are no worldwide kingdoms that are left out of that dream. But this time, this is very personal for Nebuchadnezzar. This will be as personal as it can get, as we'll see as we go through this chapter, that God is speaking directly to him about him and about what will happen to him. So this is very, very different. And and he has a reason to be alarmed here. And um, so now... I want to talk about a couple of things this morning before we jump into this chapter because this chapter, chapter 4, is the one, probably more than any of the others, that the liberals grab hold of and then dispute that this book could have been written in the 6th century B.C. Because in their arguments go something like this, and this is the way that liberals usually argue is that these things 
are impossible. These could not have happened. These things are absurd. They're ridiculous that um, what will happen to Nebuchadnezzar could never happen to anyone. And you'll remember, you know the story probably, that Nebuchadnezzar goes mad. I mean, he goes out of his mind. He loses his right mind. He's given the, the mind of an animal. And then he behaves like an animal. His, his hair becomes like the wings or the feathers of eagles. His uh, fingernails and his toenails grow to be like claws of birds, birds of prey. And that he winds up out in the field, cast away from all humanity, and grazes like a cat with the cattle and eats grass. And this goes on for seven periods of time. And the liberals' arguments would be something like, like, that's absurd. Because at the end of this time, Nebuchadnezzar is re, um, gets his kingdom back. And their, their argument would go like, there is no way that you can be king, go mad for seven years, and then be restored as king. That's not going to happen in civilization. That's a ridiculous thing to say it could happen. Or they would say that um, no man's hair could ever become like an eagle's wing. Or his fingernails could never grow to being like um, a hawk's claws or an eagle's claws. That, that, that is absurd. That, that This is just speaking metaphorically and that this could not actually happen. And by the way, the ancient documents that we have are mostly silent about this. They don't speak to this time of Nebuchadnezzar and this gap in his reign. And so from all of these things, it's obvious, is it not, that this is just um, a forgery of a, of a prophecy. This has nothing to do with anything that was going to happen in history. And so that's the way the argument goes. And if you give in to that, then they'll take you and turn you and say, this is really not talking about Nebuchadnezzar or about any of the things that happened um, or will happen in the future. This is really talking about um, 200 B.C., when Antiochus IV Epiphanes comes on the scene and wreaks havoc over all the Jewish nation. And so that's what this book is all about. It's not about ancient history or the prophecies that he gives later about Greek and Roman. That couldn't be true because by the time you get to 200, when they say this book was written, those things are in the past. And so we're just writing his history instead of prophesying what will happen into the future. And these arguments just build and cascade on one another. And I, I promise you, there are many, many, probably more out there making those arguments than those who are making the arguments that this book was written in the 600 B.C.s, that it was written by Daniel, that it does prophesy of the future, that it is significant, that it really is part of the canon and should be taken as such. There aren't many who are saying that. Most of it are saying the opposite of that. So my question to you, why, why say all that? Why talk about all that? How are you going to answer those critics when they come to you and they say, listen, this, the, the ancient documents, and we do have some of the ancient documents out of Babylon, really don't speak to this issue. 
They don't talk about Nebuchadnezzar going mad in his mind and being out of office for seven years. And by the way, who was in this place if he was out in the fields grazing for seven years? How are you going to answer that argument? Go ahead, Neil. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, like, you know, you read about um, the Sumerians and, you know, Sargon and Malachi and, you know, all those people. And uh, I think I got his name right. But they, it's like, you know, Sargon's great and Sargon did this and Sargon did that and everybody clapped and everybody loved them. And I love me and they love me and we all love me and I'm great and I beat these people and I beat those people. Right. And anything that was bad... Right. Not that we don't do that today, right? It's a legitimate, well-reasoned answer to criticisms of that nature. Yeah, it is, that they would not display their faults. All right, that's one of the ways you could do it. What else would you say? That, and let's talk, we'll narrow this down and take it kind of argument by argument. The ancient documents don't talk about this. But I've mentioned several times, have I not, in this class where the ancient documents do talk about things, such as the coup attempt or such as destroying the temple. Those types of things are mentioned. So that's one of the arguments, is that they would hide their own faults. What else would you say to them? Go ahead, Randall. Well, uh, if this document was supposed to be written in 200 B.C., then how do they explain its appearance in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Yeah, and, you know, when you start talking about the Septuagint and when it was written, um, there are, beyond my capabilities, there are many arguments that would not date it at, at that date in the 285s or whatever. There would be some that would say it really, if you're looking for a Greek translation of the Old Testament, you really can't put your hands on one until Origen in the 2nd century A.D., and there are arguments both ways on that. And, you know, so, and that would be their argument, by the way, the liberals. They would say that there is no Greek translation of the Old Testament until you get to 200 years, really 400, 450 years after the date that some would give to it. That would be their argument. And, and you know, you've got to be able to answer these things. Go ahead, Larry. Right. But the liberals don't believe in inerrancy. You know, they say that the scriptures are full of errors. And, and, oh, absolutely. And, and they would even say, this book doesn't belong in the canon. Because it was a forgery written in, two, in the 200s. Yeah, you, you know, you don't have to win them over. But you need to think critically about these things and to be able to give an answer. Go ahead, David. Well, Jesus refers to Daniel directly, right? 
to defeat the argument about this is really Antiochus Epiphanes in the 200 BC. If you believe what Jesus said, he said that wasn't it. But their argument would be that this was written after that, not before it. So, sure. Right. Right. So I mean, you can't convince people that are blind. You can't. Right. But think critically about, what about the ancient documents? They're very incomplete. We know we only have a small portion of them. And as we discover more of them, they more verify the scriptures rather than deny the scriptures. And this very well may have been written about in the ancient documents, and we simply haven't found it yet, or it no longer exists. That's a perfectly, that's as rational an argument as they give that the, the ancient documents are silent about this. It's perfectly rational as that one. Well, and many of the ancient documents are being held without translation by various governments. Right, because they're theirs, right? Uh -huh. there, um, it could be that some of those documents have been sponged out. Um, <laughs> Well, this is the significance also of the image in chapter 2 where you have worldwide kingdoms and the person who's in charge of that kingdom can do whatever they will like. <laughs> That's why today you don't have this going on, right? Because there's too many perspectives of too many powerful nations. And you can't just say someone never existed or didn't do something because there's too many other voices saying that you do. But in those days, not so much. If you were king of the strongest kingdom on the planet, then you could do whatever you well please to the historical documents, to whatever. And so you could do that. You could wipe out a civilization and say they never existed. That's exactly what's, I mean, history, is, history books are written by the winners. Right. Yeah. Babylon and you're and you're you know, you know you've subdued the entire world. How excited are you going to be to broadcast to the rest of the planet that your king uh, is living as a bovine for seven years? Right. Uh, and, and, and when he came back, he gave, gave glory to the one and true living God. So there's not a king of Babylon that's going to. Be and that's one of the arguments of the liberals, because what this chapter is is a proclamation by Nebuchadnezzar of what happens to him. And that would be absurd for the king of the world to do that. Go ahead, John David. Uh, just regarding Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are a big deal to us because of Daniel and the writings. And the, Babylon was only around for a very short period of time in right. world history. Herodotus, who's considered the father of history, makes zero mention of Nebuchadnezzar whatsoever. Despite the fact that the Battle of Carchemish, one of the biggest battles uh, and most important battles ever to take place in the ancient Near East was done by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gets zero mention. Babylon gets mentioned, but not even Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is important to us, but he's not important to history. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's an assumption on our part and an assumption on the liberals' part that if it's important to us, it should be important to everyone else. And that's somewhat arrogant. 
Yeah. And then, uh, and then what, what is fascinating is, like you said, there is more that comes to light. And there's a later writer, uh, Abinitis, who makes reference to Nebuchadnezzar being on the rooftop, being seized by a god. And, uh, and then it goes on to describe it. And the other thing is, it didn't change the, you know, what's unique and divine about this is Nebuchadnezzar didn't lose his kingship. He comes back to authority. Right. So when you look at it, this didn't actually change anything. There was a seven-year lapse, and there was some change up, and he was actually running the administration. But it's the same king. So if you look at it, it's still Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So an outside observer would just see Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Some things happen in that, just like normal history, but nothing actually changed to succession of the kingdom through this. Did so, his son run the country while his father was mad? Um, there's debate about that. And as a matter of fact, when we get to the next chapter, chapter 5, um, that's not his son who's in charge of the kingdom at the very end. Um, you know, that's that's about 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar by the time you get to chapter 5. But we'll talk about that when we get there. All right, so that's some of the arguments about the silence of the ancient documents. And they're all legitimate. And that's the kind of answer you need to give. One that's critical, thinks, and responds. Now, what about the argument that a man um, growing hair and like eagle's wings and uh, fingernails and toenails like claws of birds and eating grass for seven years because a man couldn't eat grass for seven years and live, right? So what do you say to that argument? Because they say that's absurd. That would never happen. No one would ever grow those kind of claws or have hair that became like that, that this is speaking metaphorically. This is not actually what happens to the king. What do you say to those kind of things? Go ahead. Describing it descriptively, like, I mean, when I see, you know, hair that's like eagle's feathers or whatever, I'm thinking matted, dreadlocked kind of hair because it said, because he was exposed to the dews and everything, and when it talks about his fingers becoming white claws, I'm just, I mean, if you've ever, as a little kid, saw the world record for claw, for fingernails, they yeah. look like claws. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, not actual wings or anything like that. It's just, that's what they appeared like. Go ahead, Anna. Howard Hughes, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived at the end of his life, would not allow his nails to be cut, and they grew clawed and bent over and filthy. And he, was, he had $10 billion in his estate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't count it anymore. But. Right, what about like a wild animal out in the field grazing for seven periods of time? I mean, could that actually happen? I mean, that... that And I look at it this way. God is the creator of all that there is. And if he wanted to change a man's mind and make him go mad and have him eat grass and it be able to be digested and processed and keep him alive, he could very well do that if he wanted to. So they overlook that God is in control of his creation because, by the way, the liberals don't think he's involved with his creation. 
but he is, and he could very well make this happen if, if he wanted to. Go ahead, David. Just point to, to do this terrible exercise of evaluating and starting from our perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's very frustrating. And I understand you want us to be able to give a critical answer to somebody who's asking. But at some point in time, if I throw out everything that I don't see as rational and I don't classify as in the natural world possible, I'm throwing a whole bunch of stuff out. Absolutely. You're throwing out the fiery furnace. Well, not just Daniel. Right. Might as well, I mean, there's a bunch. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, well, what about the miracles of Jesus all through the gospel? So at some point, that has to become the discussion. Right. Is who's in control of what's written? Right. And my evaluation really doesn't matter. Right. Go ahead, Jerry. No. Suppress the truth. Yeah. Right. 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 That's true. That they 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 well understand the basic truths that God is the Creator, that He's in control, that He, uh, you know, that He created all that there is. That those things are self-evident to all of the human minds. Now, they may have suppressed it for so long that they believe their own lies, okay, and that's what most of this is, but they definitely, you, you do have to start with that basic knowledge out of Romans that says they understand, or at least at one time they did. Good, David. Uh, I was just wondering, does the scripture say that all of the eight? It does not. It just says he grazed like a, a cow, like the cattle. doesn't say that that was all that he ate. Okay. Good. Um, just playing on what you said over here, you know, we, there are all kinds of, I think, plausible answers that could be given in the face of this type of criticism. Um, plausible to us, anyway. But the people on the other side, what is, what's that stake for them? What is, what is that stake? what we believe to be the fact that this was written by Daniel in you know, 600 B.C. or whatever. What, you what's mean, why stake? do they make those arguments? What's at stake for them? Why, why is it so important to them that it was not written in 600 B.C.? You know, why do the unbelievers always push against the truth is, is what it comes down to. You know, if, if they can... Um, they think more of themselves than they do of the God who's the author of the Bible. And so this is all about self-esteem and self-knowledge. Well, I guess where else I'm going with that is if they, if they can bring themselves to admit that this was written by Daniel in 600 B.C., plus or minus, whatever it was, yeah. what else are they going to have to admit? Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to, if you, if you accept Daniel... If you accept Daniel and you believe what he wrote, right, then you have to accept that God is in total control of all of human history because that's what Daniel wrote about and that's what Daniel says repeatedly over and over and over again. And then you ultimately have to accept that there is um, a coming kingdom of God 
that will be established on the earth. I mean, these all things. These are the the dominoes that fall if you buy into Daniel, and we'll show that clearly as we go through the other prophecies. So you have to you have to make that um, uh, as your basic, you know, knowledge is that you believe that God could do whatever He wants to with His creation. That's what they don't want to admit. They they don't want God to be in control. They want to be in control, and that's so, that's that's humans, right? I mean, we want to be the captain of our own ship. We don't want to be slaves to anyone. But in, in Daniel, it's loud and clear that if you accept these things, I mean, take this chapter. This is God causing Nebuchadnezzar to go crazy and then humbling him to such a degree that he will acknowledge that God is able to do whatever he wants to do. And, and Nebuchadnezzar goes through that cycle and admits those things. This is what men don't want to do. I saw a hand somewhere. I was just going to say that the, the subtle argument that you don't think about when you're talking about with uh, people who don't believe in stories like this is that they believe, like Carl Sagan said, that the universe is all there is and all there ever was, and they, they deny any kind of supernatural, right. uh, which basically means they deny the interference, not interference, but the working of God in his creation. And to do that is to deny God his authority over creation. It's to deny God who he is, basically. So they're, they're, in, they're, they're basically saying that God is not God. That's right. And, and when you get to chapter 11, where he talks about the two resurrections, one to everlasting life and one to everlasting contempt, they, they, they don't want to go there. That, that's not going to happen. If there is a God, then he's all-loving, and he would never send anyone to contempt. But... Daniel's very clear about that, that he does. And there is a resurrection coming. I mean, so there's a lot of things in Daniel we haven't talked about yet that if you give in here in chapter 4, those things come with it. And that's why they attack this chapter. You must complain a lot about Isaiah because they have a lot there. Oh, there. sure, sure. Crucifixion has everything. Sure. From your perspective, yes. From their perspective, no. Okay. So, but I just want you to think about these things because they're, you know, we blindly accept that Daniel should be part of the canon. You ought to at least listen to the arguments and think about them so that you, under, that you, you, you don't just take what other people have told you as the truth, but you've thought through the issues yourself because then they become your own as opposed to being someone telling you what is true. You who have yourself gone through those arguments and thought about them. And I'll promise you, some of them will shake you in what you believe. They'll make you dig deeper and understand better because some of them are pretty reasonable on the surface. When you get underneath them, not so much. That's the whole point God does. He wants sure. you to, what he yeah. says in the Proverbs, Treasures. I mean, just, uh, you you try and look for treasures. That's what I want you to do in my word. Right. Then you know me more because you actually want to get in, to know him better. Now so that's will, how he reveals himself. Absolutely. And I, I will say this: the time that you spend looking at those arguments of the liberals, spend ten times more time looking at the good arguments. Okay. Don't spend all your time trying to fight the liberals because they're not going to change their minds because they're darkened in their understanding. But do spend some time there. Now let me ask you this. 
you know, their argument would be that Nebuchadnezzar, this could not happen because Nebuchadnezzar would be in out of office for seven years. Is that what he said? Is that what Daniel says? Seven periods of time. Now we'll admit when we get over to chapter 9, we'll be looking at years. Okay, so it's the same terms. So, you're right. You have to think about what the words are. What do they mean? I mean, this could be seven days. It could be seven months. It could be, I don't know, seven moons. It could be a whole bunch of different things because this is a nondescript term. Seven periods. Okay, and so, and, and we're not told that it's years here at all. As a matter of fact, nowhere in Daniel will years be stated as years. They'll be talking about weeks and days and things like that that you have to put together with history to figure out what he's really talking about. Go ahead. Could be. Well, Herodotus, the Greek historian, came, I don't know how many years after Nebuchadnezzar, he went through that area, was admiring the architecture, buildings overlaid with gold, blah, blah. And they found a, a cylinder or barrel that Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote after his madness had ended. And he talked about how he took no joy for four years, but he, but he said, see, but he said four years in any of his things. He never cleaned out any canals. He didn't. He didn't build anything. He did nothing. And he was all about building stuff. Mm -hmm. But he himself admitted to being basically out of commission for four straight years. Right. A little bit longer than the three and a half years worth of seven seasons. And, and the more of that we find, the more sure the scriptures become. I mean, as we, as we discover new scrolls, new archaeological uh, discoveries, everything just continues to confirm as opposed to deny what the scriptures are. We just haven't found it all. We just just haven't discovered it all yet. Go ahead, Chris. I think sometimes we get into the mode of trying to defend ourselves when, honestly, we should instead say, why would you not believe <laughs> that this book was, I mean, why would you not take it at face value? What, you know, what, what is your reasoning for denying the what the book author says and what these things because that puts that back onto them for them having to make an excuse them having to make a, a, a reason for what they believe and, right. then, you know, and that would help them see possibly, hopefully well, what you'll notice with, with the liberal arguments is often that they either argue from silence or they argue from the absurdity of what is written, the impossibility in their words of what could really happen, that these things are obviously impossible. So you have to question why would, why are they impossible? Because with God, all things are possible. That you have to go to those kind of arguments with them, because that is the, they're arguing from within themselves most of the time. They're not arguing with evidence of what they're talking about. Can now, we just use the line about the, God says that the world's wisdom is foolishness. Right. Right. I mean, that's, what that, that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, and so, just to be sure, we accept Daniel as part of the canon. Believe that it was written in the 6th century B.C. by Daniel himself, not by a forger or by someone sitting at his feet, but written by Daniel himself. 
as he was in authority in both the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom, in, in a high place of authority in both of those kingdoms. And so that's what we believe, that's what we hold to. But there's all these other arguments that you're going to hear, if you dare, that speak against those kind of things. But don't believe them. Don't fall prey to them. Go ahead. We'll have to talk about that when we talk about the visions of Daniel, right? Is he talking about what he really saw, or is he using hyperbole? And, and, and what, what is the real right thought about what Daniel writes about? And we'll have to go through all of that, because um, there's some pretty outrageous things that he sees and that he writes about. This one's pretty outrageous that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Now... You guys are like, aren't we supposed to be going verse by verse through the scriptures, right? What is you, you know my heart in that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know my heart in that. But it's sometimes good to stand back and take a look. So I want to, if you look at, because, okay, why is chapter 4, how does it fit, and why is it there with all of the other chapters that are around it? And if you start at chapter 2, and you go to chapter 7, and you can kind of see that these things are parallel and go together. What's the, you know, chapter 2 is about um, the image, right? That Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream and Daniel interprets it. What's the most significant result or purpose for that image and for that interpretation of that dream? What is it to set in stone? Why? Why? What's the greatest outcome of chapter 2? Well, it definitely happened that Daniel became influential, but what is the greatest thing that happens in chapter 2? God being seen for who he really is. Well, God being seen for who he is, but even more than that, the stone cut without hands establishing an eternal kingdom. All the others are done away with. But that chapter is written so that Daniel may not write about the Gentile kingdoms, but that the fact is those will all be destroyed and God will establish an everlasting kingdom. That's why that's the, that's the, the truth that rises out of chapter 2. All the other stuff is in, inconsequential to the eternal kingdom of God being established. Well, when you get to chapter 7, some of you have read ahead, right? What is chapter 7 all about? You see the Ancient of Days sit down on his throne and the Son of Man introduced to the creation. That's the eternal kingdom of God. So chapter 7, chapter 2, same thing. We're talking about the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God. All right, you get to chapter 3, where we just finished out of. What's the most significant truth or the, the greatest thing that you see in chapter 2, like chapter 3? Well, I'll give you a hint. Chapter 6 is about Daniel in the lion's den. And now you've got 
the three in the fiery furnace. What's the parallel truths that rise out of both of those things? It's not so much the protection by God of the people. That's true. But in response to what? Absolutely. It's about true faith and belief in the one living God. So you've got chapters 2 and 7, which talk about the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God. You've got chapters 3 and 6, which talk about the faith in God. All right, so now you've got chapters 4 and 5 that you have to walk through. What's chapter 4 all about? I know you've read chapter 4. What's chapter 4 all about? It's about the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar, right? What is chapter 5 about? This is where you have the writing on the wall. What happens in chapter 5? Absolutely. The Babylonian kingdom falls to Medo-Persia in chapter 5. So you have chapters 4 and 5 in the middle here which show the destruction of the kingdom of Babylon. So you see, these things are parallel. There's a reason, there's symmetry in the book. And if you throw out chapter 4, then you lose your symmetry. You lose your balance. And Daniel was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You realize that, right? I mean, even the things that Nebuchadnezzar says in chapter 4 are written in the canon by the inspiration of the Spirit. Even the crazy stuff in chapter 4, all of it written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll look at some things a little later on because chapter 4 is very different from any other chapter in Daniel because it's not from Daniel's perspective. It's Nebuchadnezzar in the first person writing chapter 4. And we'll see that as we go through this. But you see the symmetry and the balance of chapters 2 through 7? And if you just throw out 4, you lose that. It then doesn't balance the same way. And so there are reasons for believing in the order of God and the order of the scriptures and the inspiration of the scriptures. If you'll but believe and look, because it's there. All right, now, with all that said and done, trying to shake you, right? At least get you to think critically. Chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Okay? So we'll start walking through this. Like I said... We won't get as far as you thought we should, right? Had a lot to say today. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. So what is Nebuchadnezzar claiming for himself here? King of everything. He's the king of the world, right? Now, did Nebuchadnezzar understand that there were some lands that he had not conquered, such as Egypt, that he had not conquered. He just chased them back into their own land. So why does he stand here and proclaim to all peoples and all nations everywhere where, all, where men live? He's arrogant. Well, he is arrogant. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. You, you notice he doesn't say that he's in control of them. I mean, our president could do the same kind of thing. Right. All right, and if he did that, what would be his purpose in doing that? 
just saying the world like a top dog. <laughs> Maybe he just wants to communicate something to everybody. Because this is basically, uh, you could talk about this differently, and this is where I got into the study of the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text, and what do they both say, and what's left out of some, and in the others, and went through that whole discovery and said, okay, I'm not going to talk about that. Because <laughs> it's too confusing, and I'm too uneducated. He's not. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what he says. He says, um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations, and men, and he's speaking to these people. Now, I'm, I'm taken aback at what he says to them. What does he say? You, you could say peace or prosperity abound to you. When, when, this is Nebuchadnezzar, right? The guy who took kingdoms and destroyed them. The guy who wiped out the temple of Jerusalem. Took all their people captive. And now he's saying, oh, peace to you. <laughs> I mean... It could be, could be Daniel's influence to him. I don't know if he recognizes that or not. Well, yeah, he does. But I mean, I'm just not so sure that I believe everything that he says here. Okay, so that's one of the things we're going to have to talk about, right? Because I don't, I mean, this guy is is an evil king. Okay, go ahead. It's uh, sounds. Like a benediction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it is kind of right. The result of that is he, you have to if he's offering benediction, he must think he's in some authority to actually provide that blessing. Right. So it's a godlike statement. Now, personally, I think the ESV, which many of you have, mm-hmm. right, goes a little too far here when they say what? Peace be multiplied to you, which sounds like whom? Like Paul, right? I think they went just a little too far in their in their in their translation. Okay, because that sounds like a Pauline uh, greeting, does it not? No, it's in First Peter. Oh, yeah, in Peter. Go ahead. Did, you, did I hear you say correctly that uh, Nebuchadnezzar wrote this chapter? It's by first person. Notice what, what he says. He says, "I Nebuchadnezzar," okay. and you'll see. That look, Right. And we know all scripture is God breathed, and doesn't that necessarily mean that Nebuchadnezzar was indwelt by the Holy Spirit as all believers are? No. No. The guy who wrote it is. Right? It's from the first person of Nebuchadnezzar. Is he the guy who actually penned the words or not? We could talk about that a long time. Most believe either one of his scribes wrote it and then Daniel copied it, or Daniel may have been the scribe because Daniel's the closest to him. So Daniel, yes. Nebuchadnezzar, not so much. Because look at some of the things that he says as we go through this. Now, just to show you, this is from um, Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. You can look down in not only this verse, but um, like verse 18, where he says, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. And then you go down to like verse 34. Yeah, it's all through there where he's talking about the actual dream. But toward the end even, 
but uh, 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes. And then you'll see on down in 36, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king. So this is from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, very different than the rest that we've read up to this point, which is Daniel writing about. Now he quotes Nebuchadnezzar some of the time, but this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar making the decree to all of the world. Now it's recorded by Daniel. Who had originally wrote it down? Not sure. But it's written into the canon by Daniel. It, it could be a situation where he's almost, he doesn't say that this is, but he could also be just almost like we would cut and splice a proclamation. Right. It's all he's doing. It's not that he's quoting his words. It could be that like, he nailed it on the door. He's, Daniel's just copying what Nebuchadnezzar communicated. Because if you have to communicate it somehow throughout right. the kingdom in some sort of form. Right. And, and you know, a big section of this chapter is spoken by the angel to Nebuchadnezzar. Go ahead, John Davis. Just very quickly, you think about Moses writing the Pentateuch. Right. It was inspired when Moses wrote it. He wasn't there. In fact, he, nobody was there at creation. Right. He was recording something from God. Then he's recording all these conversations right. and everything. Right. true, accurate. Right. A great example of exactly what we see here is in Ezra. There's an example of a letter sent by Artaxerxes, or to Artaxerxes, and it says, and then the letter is follows. And so it gives an example of that. So right. that exactly what you just described, incorporation of other historical documents and information. But at the point it's pinned, that's the inspiration, the process of inspiration. Right, pinned into the book. Right. right. Go ahead. I'll just... You skipped over 17, and no, we're not there yet. <laughs> really? The, the angel himself gives the whole purpose for this. Yes, yes, he does. We'll get there, right? Okay. <laughs> we'll get there. Verse by verse. <laughs> not so much, right? Okay, so he, he makes this statement that really is a little beyond me when he says peace to all of you people. Go ahead. Why does that seem beyond you? Because, I mean, we've all heard political speeches. Sure, sure. <laughs> but this is the ruler of the world. He doesn't have to convince anybody. Yeah, but I mean, he's still a nice it's, yeah, it's still something that, I mean, he wants to, I mean, if he's like any other person that's in this kind of position, that he's he gets up and he speaks these, these niceties and these things as a way of, I mean, almost just to make himself sound better. Well, be magnanimous. And if you're on the other end, you'll listen to this a whole lot more than you'll listen to, I'm going to. I'm going to tear you limb from limb and make your houses rubbish, right? You'll listen to a guy who says peace instead of I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. This could be a couple of multifaceted in the sense of to my people, may your peace abound. Yeah. As long as you follow what I say so I don't throw you in the furnace. Yeah. My enemies, in a sense of like somebody said nicety, these are maybe even to my enemy I can be polite. Yeah. So you reject that he is being humbled? That he is being humble at this point, and that when this was with, when he made this declaration, he may well have been in the process because he ends it with he's able to humble those who walk in pride. Well, he at least acknowledges that. This is written after the madness. Correct. Right, has to be, because he describes the madness and my kingdom was reestablished to me and all that. So this is after the madness. So it's after he has been humbled. So, yeah. I'm just saying, could could. His perspective be changing. 
Yes. It could be changing. Well, ultimately, you know, you, we have to talk about this again, right? Is he a true believer at the end or not? Is he? Yeah, right. The scripture, unfortunately, doesn't say, and Nebuchadnezzar became a true believer. <laughs> so we'll have to talk about it instead of that. All right, one more verse, and then we'll stop. Verse 2, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonder which the most high God has done for me. Now, here, there's a couple of things in here, right? First of all, what signs and wonders up to this point, knowing that he's writing after his madness, has God done for Nebuchadnezzar? Just name them. All right, that Daniel explained the dream of the image. Right, all right, that's chapter 2, where he tells the dream and then explains it, the one of the image and all the the kingdoms. What's else? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being in the fiery furnace with an angel and not being harmed. That's clearly God showing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, thwarting Nebuchadnezzar's words, what God is there who can stop me? Right? Well, I am. I'm the God who can stop you. What else? There's more. All right, there is this, this dream of this chapter where it's about the tree that gets chopped down and the humiliation of the tree. All right, that. And then there's the, him being struck down and being cow, I mean, being grass. All right, actually going mad. Yeah. All right, those are things that he's shown. And the only one that you never say is in chapter 1 where the th- four Jewish guys were seen as more excellent than anybody else. That's clearly God picking and choosing who he's going to exalt, who is faithful to him. So these are things that Nebuchadnezzar has seen that God has clearly shown him more than he's shown anybody else. Because these are personal and up close to Nebuchadnezzar. So these are the things that are in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Now he uses this term, most high God. Where else have we seen that? Last week, right? When he got, when you get to the end, and you've got the, the Jews have been rescued, back in, um, say it again, twenty six, yeah. Where he says, um, the never, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of your servants of the Most High God. Now, does Nebuchadnezzar get it? Does he understand at this point that there is this God who is supreme over all the other gods? Does he get it? Well, he still believes that there are other gods. Yeah, he does. Maybe. Look at chapter, verse 8. Just to point you there and then we'll come back and talk about it. Okay, verse 8. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. My God. And don't get thrown by the plural a little bit later on because we know the spirit of the gods. That's, that's debatable. Could be singular there. Could be the one true God. So it's debatable. You can't just say, oh, he sees and believes in multiple gods. We'll talk about this some because he used, this is very unique. 
In that verse, he calls Daniel, Daniel, and then he calls him Belshazzar. He's distinguishing Daniel from all the other wise men. Recognizing his God, and all the other wise men just have the same gods he does. So he is acknowledging that there's this God. I don't think he thinks he's above beyond all his gods. That's debatable, right? But this is, he is remembering what happened in the fiery furnace. We don't know how long this chapter is after the fiery furnace. Could be seven years, right? Because he was mad for seven years. Or maybe that's just seven shorter periods. Don't know. But it's after it for sure. And he's remembering some of the things that God has shown him. That's why he's making the proclamation. No question. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that because Daniel's not with all the other wise men. And then he's very much singled out and called by his Hebrew name, which Nebuchadnezzar would never do. But he does in this verse. So we'll talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely he does. And that's why he calls in those guys and not Daniel, because he wants them to be able to interpret the dream. He wants his gods to show themselves as prominent. They can't. They're impotent. But then, see, think about this thing. Is, is he at this point a true believer or not? I mean, because remember, this is after the madness. So we'll have to talk about it some more. Let's, let's close because Shane was short today, right? Yeah. So, thanks for your time.